0: The following program is sponsored by Evangelical Life Ministries. Welcome to the Liberty Alert with Gregory Seltz, sponsored by our friends at the Lutheran Center for Religious Liberties here in Washington, D.C., a program that cuts through the chaos and confusion in the culture today by talking to kingdom citizenship, old biblical principles for a robust, public Christian life. And now your host... Dr. Gregory Sells. Good day, good day, Washington, D.C., and friends of the LCRL all across the country. Today, we welcome listeners from St. Louis on KFUO. This is the Liberty Alert, where every week we try to cut through the noise and take on the issues, especially the public issues that matter to people of faith. Or as we like to say at the LCRL, we're trying to put our temporal liberties to work for the sake of the eternal liberties of God for all. Today in our program, uh, we are talking about the Dobbs case and the Dobbs victory on Friday and the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And to do that, again, our good friend of the LCRL and Vice President of Government Affairs from Focus on the Family, Tim Gagline. So Tim, welcome. And what a day it was, right?
1: You know, I think it is uh, fair to say, Greg, that in the last 100 years, there has not been a single term of the Supreme Court where there have been this many consequential decisions. And, you know, we're we're a young country. So you go back to these uh, major cases, Marbury versus Madison, uh, Dred Scott, Plessy versus Ferguson, Brown versus Board of Education, and, of course, now Roe against Wade, 1973. Really, uh, in the history of American jurisprudence, these major, major cases. And then, of a sudden... Here comes a Friday in June, and we know that remarkable things happen on Fridays. <laughs> right. And uh, and in Friday in June comes, uh, I think, the most consequential decision, certainly of yours in my lifetime, other than Roe, which is the reversal of Roe against Wade. Here we are. It's, it, it's happened. And it's so extraordinary. It, it remains breathtaking, doesn't it?
0: Yeah. And I think that's what I want to talk about. First of all, is actually what did happen, because, you know, there's a lot of people now speculating, oh, this is what happened. That is what happened. Uh, In reality, what did happen was that the Supreme Court said this is not in the Constitution. And, And honestly, I wish they would have said more about the immorality of abortion, but they didn't. And they just merely said this is something that people have to decide, and it's going to be by their legislators, people that can be held accountable to their votes. And that's all that happened, right?
1: You know, I'm so glad you said that, because when you and I had a conversation as almost a passing matter, we mentioned two books. We mentioned a book by Thomas Sowell. And we mentioned a book by Myron Magnet, uh, the author of a little known book on, uh, called Clarence Thomas and the Lost Constitution. Right. <laughs> and uh, and one of the Great things book. that my guests and one of the things that Myron Magnet says in his book about Clarence Thomas is that this is not only uh, a, a, a historic figure for a number of reasons, but that this man, Clarence Thomas, believes very strongly uh, in one thing above all. He believes that if the Constitution says it, then it's constitutional law. But if the Constitution does not say it, it is not constitutional law. Now, this would seem to be fully agreeable on both sides of the chasm, Greg, in which we find ourselves. But unfortunately, it's not. This is a whole body of of jurists who believe in what is called the living Constitution, which Mm -hmm. is that the role of a Supreme Court justice is not to interpret the law as what the Constitution says or doesn't say, but it is to be essentially a role of a legislator in a black robe. And, and uh, even though Clarence Thomas did not write the majority opinion, it was written by Samuel Alito, another extraordinary jurist, because when you read this elegant and very powerful decision in Dobbs, you realize what a remarkable influence Clarence Thomas and before him, Antonin Scalia, have had on the final Dobbs decision. I mean, the center of it is originalism, textualism, and what the Constitution actually says or doesn't say.
0: And people need to understand the Constitution is a document that limits the power of the government, and that's exactly what it's supposed to. It's not supposed to be interpreted to expand the power of the government. And honestly, Roe v. Wade, let's, let, let me just say it this way. Roe v. Wade was the first time, besides maybe like Dred Scott, where the government gave power of some people to determine whether a life of another person was worth living or not, worthy of life or not. So, you know, the slave owners now at Dred Scott, Okay, you can treat the slave like he's not a human being and women or men or doctors or whatever, you can treat the child in the womb as if they're not a human being and do with them as you please. And and that's actually the opposite of what government is. Yeah, that's what that's the opposite of what government's supposed to do they're supposed to protect the weak against the strong and they're supposed to actually maintain human dignity of all and all that was happening here was uh people said the constitution doesn't let you do that to people and that's where we're at now
1: i'd like to pick up that if i may uh, Greg, because i think what the point that you just made is so important you know, I went back at the weekend and I read the two dissenting opinions in Roe against Wade. Okay. Uh, this was 1973, and of the nine Supreme Court justices, it was a 7-2 decision, only two dissented. One was Chief Justice William Rehnquist, a Lutheran, who had been appointed to the Supreme Court, uh, nominated rather by uh, Richard Nixon, and, uh, and then later elevated to Chief Justice of the United States by Ronald Reagan. So so William Rehnquist was one of the two dissenters and the other dissenter had come on the court during the presidency of John F. Kennedy, the late Justice Byron White. And what is so remarkable about reading these dissents, Greg, is that both Byron White and William Rehnquist in 1973 could have been guests on this program and saying exactly what you just said, which is that in a constitutional republic. The power, it's not that many other countries don't have constitutions, they do. But but, but what Rehnquist and White say, and they say it so elegantly, is that the, the only way that you a sovereign nation over time that is truly free is that you have to limit the ability of the third branch of government, the Supreme Court and the judiciary, To only apply the words of what the Constitution say, because they said in 1973, if the Supreme Court really is just another legislative branch or if it's just another executive branch, then the Constitution itself, ipso facto, is an ineffective hollow document. Exactly. Uh, And so they were emphasizing, in other words, not just the horror of abortion, but they were emphasizing the horror of power run amok. And when you read the majority in Dobbs, what you read are echoes of that dissent through the words, the powerful words of its author, uh, Samuel Alito. And so I think, Greg, you really are exactly right.
0: Well, and what I also like to talk about, Tim, is I think what just happened, because, again, you know, we're pro-life people, which means we're pro-life, pro-woman, pro-family Pro husbands and fathers, you know, pro uh, sexual intimacy, you know, that is a beautiful thing between committed people. All these different kinds of things. We're very pro this, and this is a dynamic, great way to live. I think what's interesting now is that the veneer of respectability of abortion has been removed because no one ever really talks about what actually we're talking about they always talk about choice or they talk about uh, autonomy or something like that they're still not talking about what they're doing with their choice and what they're doing with their autonomy and how we even got to the point where children are looked at as a disease rather than a blessing and so you could they could always say well this is con we're we're just um, maintaining our constitutional rights well that veneer of respectability has been removed, and so now we we actually want to engage with people about why we cherish your life, not just our life. Uh, and by the way, pro life is pro woman, and it's a women led movement more than it's a men led movement. And so, do you think that's kind of where we're at? And I think maybe because that protection has been removed. Now they have to dialogue about what actually this is. And I think that's actually a good thing, not a bad
1: thing. I, I, I do, too. And, I'm, and I love the way that you threaded the needle, if I may say. Because, <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> because, the pro, because, because the pro-life movement is to the 21st century, what the civil rights movement was to the 20th century, and frankly, what abolition was to the 19th century. Right. That in the American experience, you, you, you continue to widen the gyre uh, of who includes the Hume family. And it's ultimately rooted in the Judaic Christian view of the dignity of mankind. Mm-hmm. But in order to get to the motion of abolition, look what had to happen in our country. 750,000 Americans lost their lives in the Civil War and less than a year, uh, you know, much less than a year after the reelection of Lincoln in 1864, he was murdered. Right. That's a lot of bloodshed. That's a lot of violence. You know, you have to only visit uh, any number of spots in the civil rights movement or the Birmingham jail or the or the Edmund Petmus Bridge. And you realize that the remarkable sacrifice of the civil rights movement after the horror of slavery and Jim Crow. And then you arrive in the 21st century. And Greg, I think this goes, if I may say, very directly to your point, because even though we are rightfully celebrating Dobbs, I think as a country and a culture and a civilization, we are now going to have to absorb the reality that since 1973, 65 million Innocent, pre-born babies have lost their lives. I mean, we're missing, and those numbers are probably low. I mean, we're missing that many people. I I just think uh, it's almost breathtaking when you really internalize the sheer damage of, uh, to your point, Uh, about the violence against family, marriage, parenting, human life. Uh, I mean, it's really uh, it's really something
0: I think. And I think that's where I think we have to go with this, because obviously um, going forward, we want to do pro-life things, incentivizing family, protecting our women as also uh, incentivizing uh, our men to actually rise to the occasion to be the fathers they were called to be. All those things are possible. But I think we got to get to the root of this. I think you're right. We've got to get to libertinism. The 1960s, love the one you're with, do whatever the, you know, whatever you want to do and everyone else has to pay for it. But you it's come to fruition, whether it's STDs, broken families and 65 million abortions folks, this has been hoisted on our culture and we want to bring back a pro-life culture so that all people can be cherished in their lives. And so I think you're right we're We're right now dealing with the whole notion of a life not worth living. Well, the Supreme Court said you don't have a right to determine that great now what so I think that's the next question. say, how do we reinstill into this culture the notion and let me just yes. give you this example i was I was at the protest on Friday, okay. And I was talking with people and there was this one guy from the Democrats for life. He was bad. I got to tell you, that guy was great because he was in there and he was just saying, I'm a Democrat and I'm pro-life. And then there was Atheist for life. And, and I was listening to all the conversations. And finally, I was talking to this one guy and he said, well, what are you going to do? What's your solution? And I said, well, let me just let me just step back from that, because, you know, I, there's some solutions, if you will. But I'm not here protesting and thankful that this was done for me i'm here because i'm standing up for you and he was like what and and this guy what i said no no we're here because your life is precious and we don't want any government agency to be able to look at you and say you're not a life worth living and same thing with the potential children of your relationship that's why we're here and and that really threw them for a loop because they're like you mean you actually are here because our life is precious, too? And I think, yeah, I mean, that's the next step, right? We've got to talk about why this is yeah. important, even for those who disagree with us.
1: It is. And, and, and the reason that the serpentine nature of uh, much of the opposition will rise up in uh, all of its kind of slithery poison, right. uh, Greg, uh, is because the natural outgrowth of the sexual and moral revolution of the 1960s and 70s culminated in Roe against Wade. Uh, the Woodstock culture, the rebellion, you know, against uh, the, uh, the the faith, the rebellion against the natural nuclear family, you know, the, the the kind of topsy-turvy nature of the assault on our nation and on Western culture. You know, so much of it ultimately resides in whether other people are means to an end or whether they have an organic metaphysical dignity and greatness about them. And unfortunately, Roe against Wade always played to the lowest common denominator. And what did it result in? It resulted in uh, you know, abortion pills and clinics and attacks on people of uh, racial minorities. Uh, One of its greatest celebrants, of course, was was a eugenicist who was equal to uh, the Nazis. Uh, Margaret Sanger, who followed who founded the ultimate euphemistically named Planned Parenthood, Planned Parenthood Uh, to kill children.
0: uh,
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's 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 really a name out of George Orwell, isn't it? So you are right. And, And now the question is, what is the way forward? And I think that Christianity will play a major role for good.
0: You know, I'd like to, and and it just came to my mind. So I'd like to reiterate what you said in in something that happened to me on the Hill. Oh, I think it's about two or three years ago now, but I was on a panel for immigration. Okay. So, and I'm on this panel. And then after, and there's everybody who's in the room Democrats, libertarians, Republicans, everybody. And this, This kid gets up. I think he was uh, assistant to the to one of the senators. And he said, how are we going to bring this country together? Because this is such a divisive issue. Okay, real quickly, uh, one guy jumps up the the rabbi on the panel next to me jumps up and says this. He said, if we could start treating each other as created in the image of God, we could begin to Mm -hmm. heal. Now, I always ask my people whenever I'm speaking, how did the room react to that man's statement? How did the room react to the rabbi? And almost to a person, they're thinking, ah, they were probably upset. They were probably mad, maybe grumbling a little bit. No, standing ovation. Now, wait a minute. Uh-huh. Created in the image of God means that we're all, you know, God's children and we can treat each other that way. How come? And then so everyone's you know, clapping. Well, I raised my hand and said, well, but the rabbi, here's the problem. The rabbi cannot say that outside of this room. He can't say that in public. He can't say that at a public university. If he says that he will be dressed down in our culture, that is the problem. And I think we're seeing that with Roe v. Wade. We're we're being told that if we can't kill our children whenever we want to, then somehow you're the mean person. And we're saying, no, no, no. We're the person who really values your life, values that child's life. And we're going to try to work this through so we can be a more civil, humane culture. All right. Where do we go from
1: here then? Well. I love Lincoln's quip, he said uh, the definition of hypocrisy is to murder your parents and then say you're an orphan, you know. (laughs) Uh, And I think the reality here, Greg, is the following. Um, It's no longer going to be acceptable on the part of the pro-abortion minority in our country to speak in euphemisms anymore. That's right. Uh, It can no longer be in their terms about choice, about reproductive freedom about another health care choice, whatever. Uh, If you are a Fortune 500 company, if you are the federal government, if you are a non-for-profit, if you're a small business, if you are whatever you are, uh, what the Supreme Court decided in Dobbs was of a sudden, as we go forward and states begin to decide, that people within states are going to have to decide. And uh, mature, healthy constitutional republics We negate hypocrisy in the way that Lincoln said. Nobody gets to be an orphan. And as our citizenship, we have to stand up and be counted. Uh, And I think, Greg, that there is no more practical, important time than the application of the role of the church where it finds itself. If you're in the heart of Manhattan, if you're in the heart of Los Angeles, if you are a rural parish in the smallest village or town of Wisconsin, uh, or Maine, all of a sudden, you have to say what it is you believe about human life. Because the stakes now in a real democracy, uh, in the in in places where we live, states are going to sort this out. And they begin to sort it out in the way that I think was strongly emphasized in the majority opinion in Dobbs, uh, at the most local and organic level
0: and i think one of the and that well said and one of the things that uh, you know again hasn't been talked about much because of the euphemisms is how abortion is very destructive to the lives of women physiologically psychologically there you know it is a brutal practice not just for the child obviously it ends the child's life but it's also very very bad for the woman who actually goes through it and there's all kinds of pressures on the woman to do that and and so no more what i call uh woman hating chauvinism and and here's what i say I, I actually believe abortion is a chauvinistic thing on women where men say here's my 200 bucks that's all that i it's your choice not mine i don't need to raise that kid here i'm out well that's that's the most chauvinistic thing a man can do and we're against that but it's also no more a uh, man-hating feminism that creates that kind of chauvinism and get back to loving each other cherishing our women cherishing our men cherishing the potential to have a child in a committed relationship where the child is is now seen as a blessing, not a medical emergency. And, and so again, like you said, we got to get back to all of that. And that comes down to um, looking at each other as made in the image of God, a life worth cherishing. Now, I also want to throw uh, out there that, that I was approached, um, and I'm sure you were too, you know the uh, Family Security Act, and we're not going to talk about it because I'm not here to advocate it at this point or not. I did sign on to it, but it was something that was uh, put forward because if, if Roe were to end, they wanted to now put something forward that was pro-family, that was pro-woman, that was pro uh, incentivizing the right things for government to do in, in our lives, rather than incentivizing them to take the easy way out and, and just terminate the pregnancy. So even the you know, I guess what I'm saying is even on the Hill, they're not just sitting on their hands on this. And so not only should we take our citizenship seriously and deal with it in our state levels, but we also have people who realize that marriage, family, and cherishing one another are the way to go.
1: Absolutely. And uh, I love the idea, I really do, um, of holistically saying in a post-Roe world, what are uh, not or what are our rights? That's important, of course. But what Uh, are our duties? You know, Uh, know, as a conservative, I would much rather uh, speak about duties, uh, you know, on most days of the week. I love Edmund Burke's uh, great observation that morals and manners are far more important and conducive, you know, to the working of a healthy society sometimes than laws. Not that we negate the law, but morals and manners are 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 the tendons and they and, and they matter and so it's going to be very important for the pro-life movement to not just say but to demonstrate how we help uh to nourish uh and uh, and to provide assistance uh to mothers to fathers to 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 the baby uh who has been born uh and to have a holistic approach uh in in the pro-life ethos and i think the pro-life movement is quite prepared to do that
0: i do uh, I yeah mean, i agree
1: yeah mm-hmm. yes well, so, 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 I, so I'm very sanguine in that regard.
0: Well, and you know, what's amazing to me is uh, we, you know, kids that go to college today, they're taught what's called deconstructionism. They know how to tear everything down. And I think that's what the sixties did. It was going to tear down our culture and it was going to make it a libertine paradise. Well, we've seen the destructive aspects of that deconstruction. What I've learned over and over again in all my readings, they don't know how to build anything up because it's always about just tearing down, tearing down, tearing down. And so you're right, Uh, the the, the duties, the manners, the way we live our life, that opportunity, that challenge, that time is now. And I think that's great for the culture.
1: And may I say, Greg, very quickly, although he did not live to employ his promise, Let's remember that the great Abraham Lincoln said what would come after the Civil War would be what? Reconstruction. Reconstruction. And, and unfortunately, very unfortunately, tragically, the man who was his uh, vice president was remarkably incompetent and not yeah. committed. To reconstruction, but we're the new abolitionists. That's right, uh, and we've and, and we have just had an extraordinary uh, blessing uh, because of uh, God's uh, you know divine sovereignty and intervention in in the life of our public square. And so I believe that as the new abolitionists, we now have to look for a new reconstruction. We have to ask ourselves what is the way forward uh, for our country, our culture, and our civilization. How can we renew it? How can we restore it? Uh, you know, this side of eternity, redeem it. I think that uh, that this kind of era of uh, you know of the of the acts of renewal are going to be very important.
0: And now, life and love, we can see it coming from below, not from above. Well, from above, from God, but not from government, any kind of government agency above us. We get a chance to actually be those kind of people for one another. And what a great day! Uh, June 24th was. Thanks for tuning in today. To get to know our LCRL DC work better, check out our website at lcrlfreedom.org. Contain there are resources to empower your public square dynamic discipleship. Or check out our weekly word from the center opinion piece every Friday at facebook.com forward slash lcrlfreedom. Till next time, God bless you always. I'm Gregory Seltz. Have a great week. You've been listening to Liberty Alert with Dr. Gregory Seltz, executive director of the Lutheran Center for Religious Liberty in Washington, D.C. This program has been brought to you by the Lutheran Center for Religious Liberty.